right. I am now joined by Micah Utrecht, who is uh, a alumni of, uh, I don't think he actually graduated from there, but this is still the most important part of his bio, of Aquinas College in Grand Rapids, <laughs> Michigan. <laughs> uh, Three semesters, baby. Yeah, there you go. That's uh, twice twice as much as uh, Tony spent at Seton Hall. Uh, <laughs> this is the, the the ridiculously inside baseball way to start this. This is a uh, uh, that's where I went to college. But in any case, <laughs> this is although I did not know Mike until many many years later. Uh, but I knew him since uh, he was deputy editor of Jacobin Magazine. Uh, the made socialist magazine in these United States. Uh, and I thought I would have him on today to, you know, talk a little bit about the state of the socialist left, such as it is, and, you know, how things are, uh, how things are looking with that, you know, as of 2022. Very happy to be here to discuss it. All right. Awesome. Uh, well, so let's uh, let's talk about that a little bit. So uh, you know, I, I did just uh, mention your college experience a little bit. Like, how long have you like been a leftist, more or less? I grew up in a very progressive family. My dad is a Lutheran pastor, and my mom is a paraprofessional and a public or a retired recently a paraprofessional in a public school from. Muskegon, mm-hmm. Michigan, and uh, she was a union activist, and my dad did community organizing uh, in a, a poor and working class, multiracial neighborhood in Toledo, Ohio. So I've got this sort of uh, progressive background, but I got into leftist politics through the punk scene as a teenager, which was how I spent, the uh, I would say, the vast majority of my uh, teenage years was uh, not really being that excited about school and being very excited about, like, Noam Chomsky and Howard Zinn and mm-hmm. veganism and dumpster diving and uh, the crust punk scene in Western Michigan, where I'm from. Uh, so yeah, that, that took me to radical politics. And then I've had a sort of winding journey of uh, disillusionment with the kind of lifestyleist politics of uh, anarchism that I was exposed to through the punk scene, got involved in the labor movement through student activism in undergrad, uh, as well as other kinds of uh, activism, anti-war activism during the Iraq war. And then the, I just dedic- decided a long time ago that I was dedicating my life to left politics in one way or the other. And uh, for better or worse, I haven't haven't stopped. I haven't flagged on that uh, on that uh, dedication, which is uh, you know it, it's not exactly good for uh, the, the bank account or any much of uh, many other things. But it's a it's a good way to live. I'm pretty happy that uh, this is what I've chosen to do with my life. So I would say, let's see. I'm 34 now. I guess over half of my life, I've considered myself a leftist of some kind or another about 20 years at this point. I think 20 years ago is when I first became a vegan. So uh, <laughs> 21 years ago, excuse me, I was 13. So it's been a long time. Uh, well, uh, all right. Well, the, uh, uh, <laughs> that's, that, that is a, that is a particular gesture of, of, of radical commitment that I, I have never done. So uh, there you go. Uh, but like thinking about that, right. So 20 years ago, uh, you know, like I, you know, I can remember, right. You know what it was like to, uh, to be, uh, to be a socialist then, or, or even really like, you know, 
10 years ago. Like, even though, mm-hmm. you know, Occupy had happened or whatever, you know, but like 2012, you know, I, I mean, I can vividly remember that. And that, that's some, uh, like, that's some, like, very, uh, you know, marginal subculture kind of political interest to have. I mean, like, like one small dumb thing that I was thinking about a couple of years ago was I was in uh, a coffee shop in, um, you know, East Lansing, Michigan, where I grew up. And I, and I, you know, and I was at the coffee shop and I saw somebody with a, with a, like a DSA sticker on their laptop. And it occurred to me that if this were, you know, 10 or 20 years earlier and I had seen somebody at the coffee shop with like a sticker on their laptop, uh, into, you know, that had something to do with the socialist group that I was a member of. We'd have a conversation. Like, oh yeah. Like, you would drop everything you were doing and you'd be like, I have to talk to this w- one other person. Cause I'm never going to run into a person like this for like years. <laughs> I have to take advantage of this opportunity. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like, of course, I didn't do any of that there because it would have been a weird thing to do. But like, it, it, it is, uh, it is sort of, it is sort of telling about the difference. And I, and I guess, uh, and I guess one thing to, you know, sort of get the ball rolling thinking about is the extent to which that difference has to do, you know, I mean, obviously, the two Bernie campaigns, and the time in between in which, uh, you know, people sort of knew there was quite likely going to be a second one and all that. Uh, so mm-hmm. 2015 to 2020, I think, like, really helped with that in a lot of ways, not least that it gave people a feeling that there was something that was meaningfully to the left of just regular liberalism that was a live option in normal American right. politics of the kind that, like, you know, you don't have to be in some sort of strange bubble to have heard of. Right. And I, you know, right now, um, I mean, I guess this is, this is like a super broad question. So take it wherever you want, but like, what's, uh, so, okay. So I remember, I remember what the socialist left was like in 2012. Uh, I know what it was like 2015 to 2020. Like, what are we, what are we looking at now? Well, there's multiple ways to answer that question. I mean, on the one hand, if, if you were radicalized and, and introduced to leftist politics as the vast majority of, I think, American, self-identifying American leftists today uh, were, then you're crushed, you're heartbroken. You're still actually parsing the fact that we no longer have the Bernie Sanders campaign uh, as our sort of North Star uh, in the way that we did over the past half decade. I mean, that was the focal point. Even if you decided that you were sort of anti-electoral, that this electoral politics business is not what's going to uh, lead us to the, the promised land, at least you, you think that was still the main thing that you were arguing against, right? That was like the focal point. And now we don't have that. Um, and it, it sucks. <laughs> I gotta say, not ideal. Uh, really not where you want to be. Uh, you much rather would have the campaign like that sort of, uh, propelling you along and, um, from my perspective, like serving as a disciplining force in a good way. Like, you know, people under, understood during the Bernie campaign that people had to put aside their, 
grievances and differences with each other, whether they be interpersonal or whether they be political. Um, for the most part, the people understood that like what was the most important thing in the world was to get this guy elected president. So we all threw ourselves into that project. But now there's not that same kind of North Star. And uh, we're all built discombobulated. And what happens in these moments is often that people, uh, you know, leftists look inward rather than outward. They develop internecine squabbles. They are at each other's throats and they sort of, they no longer have their eye on the prize uh, in the way that we once did. And and that's not great. Uh, and it, anybody who's on the left today can, um, you probably knows tangible examples of, of what I'm talking about. On the other hand, if you take it from the point of view of somebody who, whatever, I'm only 34, but like been around for 20 years, as I said, on the left in one way or the other, we are still in such a better position than we were pre-2015. We are, our ideas are taken partially seriously in mainstream discourse. I mean, you're no longer laughed out of the room at articulating a socialist politics. We have a group of people. I mean, literally there were times in the uh, 2000s and early 2010s where I felt like I knew most of the American left. I was like, <laughs> like, I had a pretty good handle on who people were, not just like in Chicago where I lived at the time, but like around the country. Like it wasn't that hard to like get a handle on such people. And now we've got, you know, multiple institutions, uh, whether they be magazines, whether they be socialist groups like DSA, whether they be other kind of progressive formations like Justice Democrats, et cetera, et cetera. We have all of these things. Uh, that are happening. Uh, that, that are. It's a really exciting time to be able to interact with all of them. It's a very good place to start from in terms of uh, continuing to try to make the left more than marginal in the United States. Uh, it really beats the extreme marginality that we faced uh, 20 years ago. And if you talk to somebody who's been around the left since the new left era of the 60s and 70s, they went through a far more bleak period than we went through. Um, and so if you're like, if you understand that, you know, if, if you feel in your bones that we have answers to what a decent and dignified and democratic society should look like, uh, if you know that to be the case and that you know that there is a sort of uh, rabid, uh, just disgusting right wing with no concern for human decency and dignity whatsoever on one hand and a democratic party, which, uh, is better than that, but not by much, uh, and that we have to be the ones to insist on basic social democratic goods, the stuff that can make for a good life for masses of people. Um, on the one hand, you got to be dispirited that we're still very marginal after those five years of Bernie Sanders, but on the other, uh, as I said, we're in a much better position to make those kind of arguments, and there are tangible victories and like new footholds that we can point to that show that we are in a better place uh, than than we were not that long ago, and I, um, you know, I, that that is the basis of, of my of my hope. That's why I don't, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not always feeling great about our prospects, but I, I still uh, uh, hold on to those uh, those instances of, of 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 hope and possibility for a better world that we currently have before us. So, uh, okay, so preach to me. What what are some of those? Well. Uh, you know, there's like the success of a magazine like Jacobin, obviously the thing that I think most about because I work for Jacobin. There's the, the way that we as a magazine uh, have brought 
socialist ideas from non-existence to marginality in the mainstream discourse. I mean, there are, you know, there are mainstream uh, uh, outlets that feel the need to respond to socialist provocations. We have people like uh, AOC and Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and other uh, local examples of socialist elected officials, which there's a lot to say about them, but at least they are like standard bearers for some kind of leftist politics in uh, mainstream uh, American politics. Uh, there are, you know, things, exciting things happening in the labor movement. The, the labor, nobody should overstate the extent to which the labor movement is so somehow back or, you know, re- ready to uh, to fight for the American working class. But like things like the Starbucks workers organizing drive kicking off uh, are, are legitimately exciting developments uh, in the American working class that uh, people should not take lightly. They're not, you know, totally what we need to get back on our feet and, and build the world that we want. But like there are things popping off here and there. There, there is legitimate working class anger that can be capitalized by, on by a left. I live in the state of New York. Uh, there's very exciting things happening, uh, at the state level, especially with new socialist elected officials, uh, getting elected. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that is happening out there. It, it is not on the scale that the Bernie Sanders campaign was obviously Bernie Sanders went from almost complete obscurity to, uh, putting a legitimate campaign forward before becoming the most powerful person on the entire planet. Um, but but there's there's real tangible stuff that we can point to that shouldn't distract from our talking about what what the left is doing wrong and like and you know sure. remembering that we are in real marginality. Um, but it's I've seen bleaker days. Let me tell you, people, it's been way way worse than this in the course of my lifetime. Uh, and so we've we've got a starting a decent starting place to come to go from, and uh, we should be focusing on that rather than solely sort of uh, doing weeping and gnashing of teeth at all times about the, our marginality. Yeah, fair. Uh, so I, I mean, I remember I was thinking about, as you said, that uh, the, you know, the clip that I've, I've gone back and rewatched a few times since of Bernie Sanders uh, declaring his candidacy for president the first time in 2015, when he did it by, I think, literally at his lunch break possibly yeah uh going outside and said it taking out a speech that like i had that was like uh a piece of paper folded up in his pocket uh talking like you know this small group of reporters and you know he starts out i'm not gonna have a lot of time for questions you know so uh, like that uh you know from that that beginning right i mean he did uh you know come heartbreakingly close to uh to winning and then, uh, you know, spe- you know, in some way, I mean, obviously, you know, numerically much closer the first time, but in some ways in terms of momentum and everything much closer the second time. And then, you know, since then, um, you know, I've been thinking about sort of post-campaign Bernie and thinking about the role of a magazine like Jacobin. And one, so like one thing, for example, that I actually really like about uh about bernie sanders is the fact that he uses his twitter account uh to just constantly make uh and i I mean i've seen people kind of rag on him for doing this because it's like uh 
you know, like, like there's something a little bit funny about it or like some of it seems like a little bit like, yeah, 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 right. You know, to us, but like he, he, he uses it to just like constantly all day, every day, make these like sort of like super basic points about like, uh, I don't know. I remember one that I retweeted yesterday was something like, you know, basically why don't we call our, you know, rich people oligarchs, you know, lots of stuff like Mm -hmm. that, you know, and, and I think there's actually something really good about that like the fact and like i think there's something about that that maybe gets to why he could be effective in that role that he just has like uh you know he doesn't get bored with it right i mean like like and whatever i mean you know whatever his relationship is to the twitter account i mean like this is emblematic of a lot of other things he does right you know that like he's uh he's happy to just sort of make like really basic bread and butter leftist points like all day, every day, because they're things that people need to hear. They're things that are, uh, that are, that, you know, might be old hat to us, but, you know, don't form any part of, you know, 99% of ordinary, uh, right. of ordinary political discourse. You He's know? oriented towards the masses of people who are not already on board with him and his left politics. He, he, he and, and so he like understands that you have to keep making that same point over and over and over again. And, and, and in doing so is how you build a mass movement. Or like a mass opinion shift or a mass anything. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. Uh, and and so, you know, I guess thinking about like what the the role is of of media, you know, like Jackman and and it's, you know, I mean, I guess there's not just one answer to that, but I mean, like it seems like, um, you know, some... <sighs> You know, you do, I mean, you do want to do a lot of different things with the magazine and have, uh, and have it be a a place where, you know, like whatever, I mean, like clearly, you know, clearly you want people who are showing up to like see what's on the website every single day, you know, like, like, like finding things that are interested and intrigued by every single day. But, uh, but, uh, there, there is also something to, uh, the, the Bernie Sanders Twitter feed, you know, kind of, uh, yeah. you know, you know, kind of, kind of piece, right? I mean, like, uh, like, like something. Well, okay, so I mean, something I a conversation I I had with with you a while back uh, is that. So I wrote at the end of 2020. I wrote this. I wrote this piece called uh, "Abolish Inherited Wealth," which I wrote uh, primarily because because uh, I had. Uh, Otherwise, only published fifty-one articles in two thousand and twenty, and I'm I'm very prone to like arbitrary, you know, goalposts. <laughs> and, uh, That's what so, all of human society is based on: is our establishment of such arbitrary goalposts. So I support you in that. Yeah, so, so it's like, oh, I, I, I want to have a you know fifty-second piece, so it, it could be with average one a week, you know, for two thousand and twenty. And so, so I asked if any. And let the record show, Ben. Sorry to derail you for a second, but I reached out to you recently because I was like, Ben's not on track for fifty-two pieces this year. We got to get this this right we got to get back to ben doing the 52 pieces in a year <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right that's right i, I appreciate that supported by the rest of us so, uh, so i i i think i so i reached out to you and, and a couple of other editors jack Ben, about ideas for for things that i could i could do kind of very quickly at the end of the year and uh and I think it was I think it was uh, I think it was Sean who uh, who who said uh, how about how about something about uh, about abolishing inherited wealth. So I wrote that. This is, and, this is our senior editor, Sean Goody. 
yes. And, um, <laughs> and, and then, um, and then it, uh, somehow or another, I like, I think, I think some, like, I don't know all the details of how this happened. I think probably there were some like, you know, well, definitely there were some right wingers who were like sort of calling attention to it to denounce it or whatnot. But, uh, but somehow or another, that thing blew up. Like that was, that was like, there were like half a million, you know, uh, views or something. And, uh, and I remember talking to you about it later and saying, look, I mean, on the one hand, like, this is great, right. You know, I certainly stand by everything I said in the piece and, you know, et cetera. On the other hand, if I had known that like it would have blown up quite that much, you know, I probably would have written it slightly differently because in retrospect, I do think that I wrote it a little bit in, um, in a sort of, uh, like a lot of it was kind of, um, written sort of for people who kind of agree with the basic principle and sort of try to think out loud about how it could actually work. And, uh, and, you know, not that there's no value to that, but like, you know, and, uh, but like also, but in retrospect, I do wish that I'd written a little bit more of the motive. But you, you had the Bernie mindset though with it. Yeah, right. Exactly. I, I, I wish I'd had a little bit more Bernie mindset about how I, uh, how I, you know, how I presented it. Right. So, so I think that, uh, uh, so, so I guess, like, I guess what I'm getting at is it seems like that with the kinds of things that it's useful to, you know, to put out, you know, with a, you know, with a platform like Jacobin, I mean, again, it's, it's not, you know, it's not just that, right? You know, you want things that are sort of intervening in debates that are a little bit different from this. You know, you want things that are, you know, you want things that are just like fun or entertaining or interesting for, you know, for people in the core audience. Uh, but, uh, but you do, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, it is, it is something that you do have a chance uh, with the things you put out at Jacobin to, you know, reach a wider audience in ways that you do want to kind of have that sort of uh, a little bit more of that birdie mindset for, you know, for, for how to do it. Right. Cause it's a, it's a, you know, sort of precious opportunity to, uh, to, uh, to, to reach a bigger audience sometimes. So, I mean, I guess, I guess what I wonder is like, what are the sorts of things that like, so that's one. So like one possible thing that you could do, you know, that, that's a, that's a sort of like try to reach a bigger audience and just, and just sort of like intervene on some like really basic point, right? Like one version of that basic point, you know, one sort of basic point is like, here's some, you know, social democratic good and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and why it's important to good, and, you know, mm-hmm. we're fighting for. And, uh, and another one that the abolish inherited wealth maybe, you know, is like getting a little bit more into is like, you know, here's why to dream even bigger than that. But like, other than that, I mean, like what are the things that you think of as like the, the sort of most important kinds of things to try to hit in lots of different ways and lots of different articles to, to try to get like a, a bigger audience to, you know, on board with them. Well, there's a couple of things in response to that. One is just the bread and butter of our magazine is responding to the events of the day and giving a, socialist take on the events of the day um, because there's nowhere else that people are going to get that from, at least like in, you know, an article length form about whether it's, uh, you know, the Putin's war on 
Ukraine or, you know, what people should think about uh, inherited wealth or whatever. I mean, things are happening. And I think of it as part of our responsibility to give give the socialist uh, view or give a socialist view on what we should think about that and what we should do in response to that, because you're you're not going to get it in The New York Times. Um, So, you know, we're we're responding to the events of the day. Uh, We're also trying to inculcate, you know, a basic set of values and like uh, uh, analytic mindset of of how to think about society, how to uh, think about how social change happens, how to think about why uh, certain actors in society act the way they do, um, you know, to establish the basic socialist principles of the way that the world works, uh, which I think are pretty sound. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and then also, you know, a sort of downstream effect of that is to try I mean, like, I, I'm always ecstatic when I hear about, uh, I was on the phone the other day with David Alexis, who is running for state Senate near me in Brooklyn, uh, New York State Senate. And, you know, I heard from him about how uh, Jacobin was very important in his political formation uh, in terms of how he sees the world and, and sort of uh, help inspire him to uh, run for office where he will then hopefully, you know, go legislate uh, based on uh, socialist analysis and socialist principles. So, um I think of our ability to train a, a group of uh, a, sort of a core cadre of people like the David Alexis's of the world uh, in you know the basics of socialism uh, is a really uh, important thing for us to do. And then also, I don't want to pr- produce a magazine that's boring. I don't want to right. produce a magazine that's where you're like, oh, well, there's Jacobin. We know what they have to say uh, about this. I mean, there's some level of that that's necessary. Um, because we do need to state you know, and restate first principles over and over again. That's that's the Bernie mindset, right? Like Bhaskar uh, Sankara, who founded Jacobin, once said to me, "Like anything worth sa- worth saying is worth saying like four and five times." Uh, and so I've really taken that mantra to heart uh, because that's how you you reach a mass audience. But like I also like, I mean, I'm an editor of a magazine. I like reading. I like uh, arguments. I like you know. I like having. I think things that are to, to read things that are fun. Uh, and so we right. also like publish stuff like that, that is sort of rooted in socialist principles. I like art. I like novels and I like movies and I like them for reasons that don't have anything to do with like whether or not, you know, um, if, if Shrek two is portraying <laughs> like the, uh, the aristocracy in a properly, uh, historical materialist way, like Shrek Two is a fun movie on its own merits, regardless of whatever politics it's communicating to the world. So, you know, I like to oh, okay, include okay, that but stuff in the magazine. What's that? Okay, but is it? Oh, is it? Well, you know, it's been a while since I've seen Shrek Two. I'm not okay. sure. Okay. <laughs> um, but like the point is that I, uh, I, I want to both give a sort of like coherent way of viewing the world uh, that, that can, you know, lead us, uh, whether directly or indirectly, to a better world. And also, like, the point of socialism is to create a world where there can be more beauty, uh, more human creativity, more, like, f- flourishing of the human spirit in a way that currently does not exist because capitalism chokes it out. Uh, and so I like to sort of uh, publish stuff that, that is in, in keeping with that. You know, the, the, the flourishes of, of, uh, of human brilliance and, and, and fun that currently uh, exist, I want to, like, highlight them uh, in the magazine. Uh, so 
that is a sort of uh, rambly uh, and uh, maybe hyper caffeinated way of uh, quickly going over some of the main things that I that I want to accomplish uh, with the magazine, and that I think we do a pretty decent job of. Nice. Okay. Well, let's get. Uh, we have a caller, so let's get him for a minute before we go. Uh, so. All right. Chase, hey, can you hear me? We can. All right. How are you guys doing? Great. How are you? Not too bad. Um, so I had a quick question about, um, might take us a little far afield, but I think it's relevant. Um, a number of years ago, I actually did an interview with Jacobin with a sociologist, Stephanie Mudge, who um, wrote a great book about the... Um, uh, change in the Western left over the last century um, and how all these various left-wing and socialist parties ended up becoming neoliberal. <clears throat> and her, her argument was basically it was a change of hand in the uh, intellectuals, the party intellectuals over time. And they went from sort of left-wing journalists to eventually like um, uh, basically neoliberal economists. Um I guess I have a similar – I wanted to bring that in conversation because, you know, as it stands, this sort of new left project that we're all in one way or another attached to um, really comes out of, of a certain social class of people, I think, to some extent. Um, people who, in one way or another, are college-educated but downwardly mobile. Right. <laughs> um, and I was wondering how, um, how you guys think that has affected the kind of media – that we've created, um, if it's a problem or if it's not a problem. Um, and, and of course, like, you know, people who study writing are more likely to go and become writers for a left-wing magazine. So there's, you know, to some extent, it's sort of a boring tautology to think that it could be otherwise. Um, at the same time, it does feel like so much of the media we put out um, is by and for people with like a graduate degree and, and I'm getting a master's, so I'm part of the crime, but, um, I just want, I was just wondering if you guys could reflect on that for a second. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I think education is good. I don't think you're committing a crime by getting a master's degree. Anybody who wants a master's degree should, uh, should get one like uh, that's that's I, I like I went to school and I liked it and it changed my life and it changed many other people's lives so people shouldn't beat themselves up too much uh, about this stuff and there's a way that this is sometimes talked about in leftist discourse uh, that just like I mean people think we need to declare war on people with master's degrees or something right like people who are part of the uh, the, the quote unquote PMC the professional middle class um, and it becomes a way I mean. Well, everything you've said about the way that leftist politics have been sort of taken over by um, this sort of uh, highly educated but downwardly mobile a group of people is a real problem. Um, and it affects, I mean, there are all kinds of neuroses and uh, weird uh, tics and weird cultural affects that, that come along with some of that sort of like people like I think the three of us who probably have liberal uh, arts college uh, degrees. Uh, but... Um, but that is not – that's something that we need to deal with, but I don't think it is somehow like uh, it it's, it's means that we have nothing useful to contribute uh, to building and rebuilding 
the left. I mean, there have always been like you know party intellectuals uh, from you know the Communist Party in the United States to uh, left parties around the world, and and we're always going to have some kind of uh, coalition uh, on that front. But like, uh, the, I think the key is just understanding that no, we cannot accomplish anything uh, in the world if we don't rebuild the labor movement. Leftists right. have a particularly important role to play in that. They've, they've played a particularly important role historically in the United States and around the world. And so uh, people who are on the left like need to take seriously that task of rebuilding the labor movement. If we don't do that, we're not going to get anywhere. And like some people who have master's degrees can play roles in doing that in trying to cohere a new left around a set of ideas for a magazine, like I try to do. Um, other people can get jobs as you know teachers and uh, nurses and uh, other kinds of rank-and-file jobs in order to play the role of uh, rebuilding the labor movement on shop floors uh, around the country. Um, so and I think that's that's the way that we're going to get beyond these problems of uh, what's been called like a Brahminized left or, you know, a left that uh, is, you know, that speaks, that tries to speak on behalf of the working class, but uh, often ends up speaking to other people with master's degrees. Um, But the way way to do that is not just to like be filled with self-loathing at all times. (laughs) Like, we can't stop me from doing that. (laughs) Uh, You know, well, you know, you can do that. Uh, That's that's between you and your therapist, I would say. Go go ahead and talk to your therapist about that. But like, don't drag the rest of us in public into your public therapy session. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, it is funny as you're saying all that. I was just thinking about the fact that um, uh, I've got, two master's degrees in, in two different subjects and a PhD. So, uh, you know, I, I have, and, uh, you know, and, and I was, uh, and, you know, and I started doing left media stuff after years of, uh, of adjuncting. So, you know, I, I definitely, those, uh, the, the shoe, the shoe definitely fits for me. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I agree with everything you just said, Mike. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I, I don't. I think that any left movement would have people who, you know, who match that description in it. You know, who are who are writers and you know and other things uh, who definitely be part of it. I think it would also have a lot more of your sort of, you know, whatever the the Gramsci phrase is. You know, organic intellectuals who who didn't necessarily come out of that uh, that background uh, that it has that it has right now, but. Uh, I mean, actually, if anything, I think that the interesting thing about the left right now is that it's not like the sort of typical thing would be, you know, historically would be that you have people who come out of these sort of professional class backgrounds who are, you know, morally attracted to a workers movement and, you know, align mm-hmm. themselves with it. And, you know, obviously there's a big element of that still, but like also I think that there's a lot more material self-interest right now mm-hmm. because of the, because uh, academia, journalism, et cetera, you know, getting like economically collapsing or becoming so precarious and, uh, and, and people actually like, I mean, you know, there are all sorts of unionization attempts in these fields now that you wouldn't have gotten not very many years ago, you know, because, uh, 
you know, that aren't just expressions of people's politics. I mean, they're real, like, you know, they're expressions of people wanting healthcare and stuff. Um, so I, I don't know, you know, I don't know what to make of that exactly, but I mean, I think that definitely needs to be part of the analysis. I, I guess. Yeah. And I, yeah. Can, can I just say briefly on yeah. that? Um, that we have no idea. I mean, social change does not work in, uh, you know, obviously we can put down some basic formulas, you know, the, I'm, I have a master's in sociology, I believe, in social science, right? Like society functions according to some basic principles most of the time that we, you know, that we, that we can talk about. But, uh, but we, social change can also happen in very weird ways. And like things can spring out of uh, other things that like you never would have guessed would have happened. And I think it's totally possible that uh, while it is not enough to rebuild a labor movement around a bunch of people with master's degrees unionizing in journalism or in academia or, or wherever. Um, it is also possible that ideas about class struggle can uh, spring up uh, in people's minds. They can be put on people's mental radars as a result of that kind of organizing. And then, you know, who, who knows where it can go. So I think while, while we do need to be clear that like that rebuilt labor movement uh, is, is critically important and that like we're not, we're not clearly anywhere up to that task yet, uh, it's also possible that what is going on right now in the sort of problematic situation where there's too many people uh, with master's degrees on the left making pronouncements about the working class or whatever, that, that can go in, in interesting and, and, and useful ways that uh, we have no idea what, what they'll look like in the very near future. So I'm trying to remain like open-minded about how social change is going to unfold over the course of my lifetime, given that history is often uh, full of all kinds of surprises. Yeah, fair. I, I, I think, um, I, I guess the one thing I would say is, you know, because uh, because I do think it is really important that, uh, I mean, is it possible there could be sparks that could go from um, kind of revival of, uh, you know, or beginning, you know, of, uh, of, labor organizing among uh, these sort of traditionally professionalized jobs where it wouldn't have happened before to, to a broader mass of people. Yeah, I, I think that is possible, but since of course uh, it can't be, you know, limited to that or it won't go anywhere in terms of effects in a larger society. Uh, I mean, I guess the one thing I would say is, yeah, I mean, you know, you don't need to, you, know, you don't need to wallow in self-loathing or anything, <laughs> but, it is probably worth like being conscious of, you know, ways large and small that you could like that you, that you don't want to mix up your presentation of your politics with sort of insisting on certain kinds of cultural sensibilities that yes, are, that's definitely true. are not going to be, widely shared outside of people from, from those backgrounds. Right. And, and I don't, you know, I don't want anybody to get this twisted. In fact, the most recent thing I wrote for, for, for Jacobin was a attack on people who genuinely do seem to want to combine uh, some sort of economic leftism with social conservatism, which I find repugnant, you know, but uh, you know, but, but I also think that, uh, you know, I also think there's a, uh, there's a um, like, I also think that there's a, you know, there's a reasonable way of, of doing, you know, of doing both things, right. You know, that you, you sort of, 
on anything that actually matters, you know, that you, you stick to your, your socially progressive guns, but like on sort of small kind of, uh, symbolic and, um, you know, rhetorical and, you know, just, um, I, I don't, I, I think there are a lot of ways in which, uh, in which kind of insisting on cultural sensibilities that are like linked to social progressivism in people's heads, but are not actually necessary for them in any way, uh, can, can be very bad for, you know, for, for expanding the tent. Right. I mean, I, I think that, uh, cause you know, and, and, and I'm not like, and I mean, I, I, nobody needs to overthink this either. I mean, all I'm suggesting is just like, you know, when you say things, when, you know, you do things at the start of meetings, when, you know, et cetera, just like, you know, just kind of take a beat every once in a while to think about how it registered to somebody who, uh, who didn't come out of a university uh, background like yours. And, you know, you, 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 know you know, who's the best at this as Ben, you and I have discussed recently is Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders never gives any space for like reactionary social ideas when people ask him about, uh, you know, LGBTQ rights or women's rights to women rights or abortion. He like never gives any ground on, uh, on these things. Um, but then also makes sure to pivot to a language that is, uh, one that, you know, like he like ties his concern for like LGBTQ rights to a broader project that appeals to the vast majority of people, not, uh, to, you know, uh, sort of, uh, culture of, speaking or uh, throat clearing or whatever that, go- that goes on on a lot of liberal arts campuses uh, around the country. He, he has a, a real uh, instinctual way of uh, both like defending what is good about what people with master's degrees are sometimes arguing about things like LGBTQ rights, but also ensuring uh, that he does so in a language that, that is resonant to mass numbers of people. Uh, but thank you for the call, Chase. I think this is actually really productive. Uh, Michael, what's on your mind? Hey, guys. This is a great conversation. Um, hopefully I can be succinct. You know, one of the things that I think about – I'm sorry. I'm here with – okay, just a second. I'm here with my, my child. Um, he's very cute and three. But um, they can feel free know. to ch- chime in if he's if he's got anything he wants to say. <laughs> OK, um, no, you know, the way I think have thought about Bernie since uh, since since the end of the campaign is I think that there were a lot of uh, so, there were so many positive things about the Bernie Sanders campaign um, that I have kind of approached it as an incomplete project that had a lot of signals that it was the right project, you know, like the uh, organizing the workers before the Iowa caucuses, the uh, immigrant workers and the, the way he assembled those coalitions in Nevada and, and uh, California um, and his inroads in the Latino community and even, you know, his ability to bring in important segments of, of black voters uh, into the to the coalition. So I very much see his, his whole project as being one that did not win, but going down on and continuing to think about, but, you know, in, in some ways I would like to see more conversation about, um, 
you know, who would be in that coalition? Who are the people that we would want to add to it um, that wouldn't do damage to what he's, uh, the, to what the core of that campaign is, but that would help us actually assemble a majority in, in something like a primary or even a general election. Um, and I think that, you know, Jacobin and the left has been very good at talking about, um, you know, what we could do with respect to the working class base. Um, but there's another aspect to it, which is the professional managerial class and the possibilities for them forming, you know, like the other wing of that coalition. Um, and I think that that is probably the most likely place where you're going to find an additional group of people. Um, but I think that obviously the way that the professional managerial class is organized by the Democrats is like disastrous. Um, but I think that there's a lot we could learn from like from the Warren campaign, not in the sense that like I think her project is was was in was wrong because she wanted to basically shore up like you know progressive PMCs and and then build out and maybe bring in some some workers if if they were on board, but ultimately it was like a suburban focused campaign. Um, but I think what's interesting about the Warren campaign and what I'd like to see more about is what that campaign told us about those voters, um, because. I think that a lot of the Warren voters um, are the same kinds of people who ended up being like satisfied that Kamala Harris was the VP. And it's like, even though like, you know, a year earlier they were really agitated and talking about things like universal childcare and pre-K and maybe even housing prices and like consumer debt that is, you know, um, strangling even like middle-class homeowning families and things like that. Um, a year later, they were like, oh, awesome. Yes, queen, we've got, uh, you know, first black vice president, even though the politics uh, had completely jettisoned all that stuff that they were excited about. So I don't know. Me, it's it's <laughs> kind of so, kind of sounds like you're making the, you know, you're making the case by the end of the question to uh, yourself and to us that there isn't actually a... Uh, uh, you know that that there's there isn't actually anything very actionable about this this kind of uh, what we can learn about this uh, this kind of voter in terms of. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, there's the, well, I guess the question is, you know, is there, um, you know, a movement that can be built that's that's strong enough that starts to make, uh, uh, you know, pull people into a more durable form of that. And I think that that might not be done in one election cycle or, you know, I, I don't know uh, what yeah. the time horizon on that is, but I, I can envision a time where, where a movement gets strong enough that some of those, they have enough working class institutions that, um, you know, people in the suburbs start to say, yeah, I want to be with those people. Sure. I, it's a, it's a great question. And it's one of the most pressing questions of our time. Um, I mean, in general, you know, I think about when I, when I talk about the Democratic Party, I say that Democratic Party voters are the people that we want to win over. And so when we're like, 
talking about the problems of the Democrats. We're talking about the leadership of the Democratic Party. We're not talking about the voters because we do believe that they can be, many of them can be won over to a, uh, an actual left-wing politics. And I kind of think the same thing about this PMT argument. Like There are large numbers of people who are of the professional managerial class who can be won over to a more robust left-wing politics of the kind that Bernie Sanders represented. But clearly the role of Elizabeth Warren in the 2020 race was to take, you know, pull the rug out from under Bernie Sanders to like split uh, what, what should have been uh, a coalition of, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the voters that Bernie had assembled, you know, um, and so, right. uh, I, I, I guess in some ways I'm, I'm like soft on the rank and file of the PMC and want to believe that they can, uh, be won over to our project, but especially after 2020, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in fact harder on somebody like an Elizabeth Warren than I was, uh, at the time because it's clear, uh, what her campaign was about. But like, yeah, there's, this is all th- this kind of coalition you know, there's all left-wing parties have always had a, uh, an element of um, people who are, you know, hyper-educated and even upper middle class. But I think that that they have to be a kind of junior partner in the coalition rather than like the main uh, part of the coalition that we're oriented to. Especially because uh, the that that segment of uh, society has developed all kinds of uh, weird ticks uh, and weird <laughs> ways of talking that a lot of people find very off-putting. Um, and, and have some very bad ideas about, uh, you know, a number of, of issues and aren't always, they're not the most reliable, like, uh, people f- to, to, uh, you know, you, you can't put them at the heart of the political project that, uh, you're building. But again, I don't think that means that we, we say like, screw them. We, we, we declare war. On them. No, no, certainly not. But I, I, I mean, I guess I do often think about like, uh, something that, uh, that, that Crystal Ball uh, told me when I interviewed her the first time in, in 2020 on the uh, the other show, the, I don't know, sister show, some some sort of incestuous family relationship with this one. So uh, the, which was, you know, she was talking about, you know, all the time she'd spent in the suburb, like, you know, D.C. suburbs in Virginia. And she said in, in a, you know, pretty liberal area where she, you know, she was sure that if you'd given people like a poll where you you asked them, like, what do you think? You know, do you think there should be a higher minimum wage? You know, do you think everybody should have health care? You know, she thought by and large people would give the answers that we'd want them to give. But um, but but her point was the thing is, though, that those people are never, ever, ever going to prioritize uh, that stuff. Right. You know, like that's that's never going to that's never going to kind of be the you know like sort of central to them or at least maybe you know as as probably a friendly amendment to her point like to go with what you're saying at least it's not going to happen sort of in any context where they're defining that context right that that's mm-hmm. um and you know i mean certainly you know you get uh i mean yeah I mean, you know, you think about any successful political coalition that you know Obviously, um, you know, obviously, like, you know, the New Deal wasn't socialism or anything like it, but the, uh, but like that sort of, you know, New Deal Democratic coalition included, you know, 
there weren't suburbs yet, but you know, the equivalent of lots and lots of people who would have lived in suburbs if, if there had been suburbs, you know, and, uh, and, and you, you could certainly, you know, you could certainly get them, right. You know, but, but I, I do think it is, I do think it is really important that the, that it, it start, you know, that like it, it sort of focus elsewhere and, yeah. uh, and it, yeah. it, you know, brought it out to, uh, you know, to, to get them right so it's like so so they're like more faced with the question of do we want to align ourselves with this movement that's um that's focused on material concerns for the majority of the population uh or not right or you know or or you know maybe do we want to focus you know do we want to align or ideally right do we want to align ourselves with that or the right wing because those would be the options at that point you know then uh yeah that then I think sure, you know, I think you can get tons of them, and 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 you and you should, and and that's and there's probably no way to win without it. But the, but uh, but all of this, I guess, is just is to just like underline what Micah said about the, you know, about the, uh, you know, being junior partners. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll you know be quick here just in response. I mean, I, I totally agree that they have to be junior partners. I think the real flaw of Warren's campaign. Well, first of all, I agree with Micah that that she was in there to block Bernie. So I have no love for uh, for Warren. What I think is interesting is uh, is what it told us about how those voters swing um, in a in a in a in a situation like this. And um, uh, yeah. yeah, and I think the only way, you know. I think tied into the prescription that you have to build a, a strong labor movement is the observation that the, the, the only way that you're going to start breaking down um, some of those patterns in the suburbs, I think, is to get people thinking more about work and and home life. And, uh, you know, and, and I, the reason I'm focusing on this is because this is the kind of neighborhood that I'm in. It's the kind of place where, like, people um you know watch msnbc and get really jazzed up and then they go and they find their local democratic club and the democratic club just says go register voters to vote for democrats and that's the ideology here you know um i think in the future we might have some you know working class institutions that are talking about things like childcare and you know maybe we have uh, some social clubs where we talk about left politics and you know kind of kind of grow that um, perspective as being something where we're going to want to look for a candidate who thinks about those things next time. Um, and uh, sorry, what, what else was I going to say? Yeah, I, I just think that um, the, the only way you're going to, I think the aim should be to be both a junior partner and also to, to split off the types of people who are, who are, more inclined to prioritize those things. And I mean, you know, um, suburban areas have, you know, government workers, they have some tech workers, they have teachers, nurses. Oh, yeah, sure. I think those are the kinds of people you got to start talking about how work affects home uh, with them. And and that's, that's the only way you're going to break that up. But it's going to start as certainly a minority because most people are just going to be watching MSNBC. And... Uh, <laughs> doing that thing yeah i, I mean if, and also i mean you know brass tacks i mean one thing that i think the warren campaign definitely shows us is that you know if you're um 
I mean, if the two main groups of people who get most excited about you are uh, are journalists and academics, that's not actually very many people. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I mean, this is I, I mean, it's 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 sometimes feels like a lot of people to me, but you know, objectively, you know, it's not very uh, <laughs> it's not very many people, you know, and uh, and I, I think the results really. Uh, really bear that out, right? So the kind of signaling that appeals most hard to them, you know, where you have the, you know, your three-page media post about some policy that, you know, you refer to as a plan, uh, you know, like that's, uh, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, if you want those people to really, really love you, you know, that that works to, to a good extent, you know, but um, but that's probably not going to be very relevant, you know, for that. I mean, there is a reason why Joe Biden won and not, you know, and, uh, and yeah. not not elizabeth warren but okay uh thank you so much for the Thanks call very much. all right we are at an hour but let's uh quickly take joshua what's up about joshua quite up organic intellectual and i just you know for the sake of relevancy want to bring up a little bit about my background so i have a poly science society and justice degree went to law school and then went into cybersecurity. got out in 2015 right around the elections um and you know what really has radicalized me has been climate change since then um and that has kind of turned me into green energy and more leftist, socialist, communist, worker cooperative type interests. Um, and, you know, it's really pushed me to really look at what the Green New Deal could do for us as a country from an infrastructure perspective and from a hope perspective. And, uh, you know, I have hope and I think we have to continue to have hope um, as we move through this, especially when we still have a lot of people that are war oriented. Um, and petro-oriented. Um, there are alternatives. And, you know, I think that unionization efforts, worker cooperative efforts around green, new energy, regenerative practices are where we're headed. And finally, I just am curious whether or not, you know, someone like AOC running for president, you know, is that just another, you know, identity politics toss of a coin or is that a real thing that could move us in a direction yeah Mike, you have any thoughts i mean i uh we have a piece on aoc in the new print issue of jacobin called the left and purgatory yeah that was sure is good yeah and um you know i think we it's it's uh, a piece that is critical of some of the recent things that aoc has done but the whole reason for publishing such a piece is because uh there is great potential in a figure like aoc as we saw in bernie campaign i mean when uh bernie popped up in american politics it had a completely transformational effect on american politics and so we we see what kind of uh value there is in the genuine left-wing working class oriented presidential campaign it can really change uh the weather of american politics and so uh, you know, I, I hold out uh, a lot of hope. I think uh, she currently is one of our best hopes for um, for getting back the kind of magic that was uh, kindled by Bernie's two campaigns. Yeah, I mean, my big thing that I would worry about AOC as a presidential candidate right now, and I'm not saying ever, but like right now, is that like the... Bernie at his 
best had a ability to um, to sort of break through, you know, despite the fact that, as you said earlier, he was like, you know, he was he never gave an inch, you know, on any actual socially progressive policy position. Uh, he still he still had the ability as a as a presidential candidate to to break through certain kinds of culture war dividing lines and you know mm-hmm. have you know their their um, and and appeal to people that you know that you wouldn't necessarily expect you know the most leftist candidate to appeal to and etc. And right now it seems to me that even though her actual policy positions are you know in ninety five percent of cases great. You know, like I, I think, um, you know, I think right now AOC seems to mostly communicate with a, a, you know, like pretty, like a much more specific sort of chunk of, you know, kind of, uh, kind of blue America. And, and so I, I wonder if there's as much potential in that role. Um, but, you know, I mean, look, I, I, I guess I'd also say on the, um, on the other part of the caller's question on, uh, on climate change and the Green New Deal, like um, I do, I do wonder about that because obviously the sort of core ideas is incredibly important uh, and and necessary and and the and like what that Green New Deal branding was originally supposed to be getting at. <clears throat> is exactly the point that we, that we want, right. That like is, is incredibly crucial for meaningful action on climate change, that it be, you know, that it be rhetorically linked to people's minds with, uh, um, with, with economic, uh, economic downward economic, uh, redistribution, you know, and, uh, jobs programs and all of that stuff. And, uh, I have to say though, right now, my impression is that, um, is that it? It hasn't really succeeded in that branding purpose, right? That that uh, that, like um, that. I my impression is right now most people when they hear the phrase Green New Deal, like what they just hear is like a bunch of really extreme environmental stuff, and they don't so much hear the aspects about like you know creating millions of new union jobs to like you know to to carry through that or you know energy infrastructure transition and all that, but I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm too pessimistic about that. I mean, we'll have to see. Well, we, we, I, I think there's enormous potential. I think that it currently is in a bit of a rut, but like people are still experimenting with what is, uh, and, and you know, it's, it's up for grabs. Also, I would say that like what someone like AOC, uh, is doing politically. I mean, this is a person who, uh, emerged as a figure a political figure in america like in an incredibly rapid uh, yeah. time frame True. who it was not like a bernie sanders who like worked her way up from you know uh doing whatever bernie was doing in vermont before uh, he won office to then winning the mayoral race and like steadily climbing a political ladder she like you know was rocketed to the top and i think a lot of her uh, she, she herself is figuring it out as she goes, like what makes for effective left politicking. And, and um, you know, there are opportunities to convince her that, like, maybe th- this way of doing left politics is not ideal, but we could do left politics this way. That'll be more fruitful. So um, I'm not ready to rule anyone or anything out at this point. I have uh, I have 
great hope that uh, that but on the question of climate in particular and on left politics in general, there's the future is unwritten. Nice. Well, that is a perfect note to end on. Uh, thank you so much, Micah. Appreciate it.